This is an ABC podcast. Almost a year ago, Lismore was hit by a catastrophic flood. A federal inquiry held in the regional town today heard how it's made the housing situation and levels of poverty worse. Look, it's diabolical. It's catastrophic even. And it's been going on for a long, long time and we have been banging on about it for a long, long time and it only just gets worse and worse and worse. And then, of course, the floods have absolutely exacerbated that situation. And we head to the edge of the Tanami Desert to hear about the strange weather phenomenon of animal rain. We can see some fish falling down to the ground, sometimes, you know, I mean, falling down on top of the roof, falling in the ground, and we can see actually those fish falling down from the sky. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadja Country. When you get off a plane in the iron ore mining town of Port Hedland in WA, there's a striking number of fluorescent shirts on show. Today, however, the suits were in town from Canberra as Port Hedland played host to the first regional national cabinet meeting in WA. The meeting took place at the town's port to give politicians a bird's eye view of the massive cargoes of expensive red iron ore heading out to China. The iron ore trade, of course, is worth billions of dollars and all of those billions of dollars end up in federal coffers. There's plenty to talk about, not least the fortunes of Port Hedland. And our reporter, Tom Robinson, is there. Now, Tom, what was the scene like today for the first regional meeting of National Cabinet? Hi, Sinead. It was a bit of a spectacle, to be honest, um, having so many uh, big names in Australian politics like Anthony Albanese uh, in a small town that I don't think in previous years has felt like it's part of the national conversation all that to all that often um there's obviously lots of general commentary about how hot it gets up here and lots of banter between the stakeholders and the politicians to that end um the there was a big sort of announcement uh for the port headland port a half a billion dollar investment that'll be put in i think that'll be of big interest to the locals who work in that port and resources industry but aside from that a lot of the discussion really centered around national issues like the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament, uh, energy markets and and sort of the political issues and day-to-day Canberra bubble sort of things. I'd imagine people in Port Hedland were delighted that this meeting was happening in town. As, as you said, it's not a town that kind of comes to national attention all that often. What do they have to say about it? Well, I think the Mayor, Peter Carter, he has kind of summed it up pretty well in that he's very excited and he feels like Port Hedland's, you know, massive contribution through the iron ore industry to the national economy is kind of being recognised. And Prime Minister Albanese did say that multiple times that, you know, this is a very important town to the national coffers and it's important to recognise that. And, And I just get the feeling that people are grateful that that's being recognised in a way. Um, whether that leads to any practical outcomes is probably another uh, another issue. But at least in principle, I think people feel proud of what their town gives to the country and that that is in some way being recognised. Like you said, Tom, there was that announcement of a half billion dollars to extend the ports in the Pilbara. Uh, obviously, they're vital to keep um, the iron ore shipping in and those boats coming in and out. Um, was there anything else announced that would have some sort of impact on on the area, in, on the Pilbara region? In short, no. Um, the Premier Mark McGowan was here. 
um, to also speak to the media. And he flagged extra alcohol restrictions, which is a very sort of micro local issue in Carnarvon, which is many, many kilometres away from here. But in terms of announcements for Port Hedland and the Pilbara, there was nothing um, aside from a very uh, hefty contribution to expanding the port. The focus um, of the political conversation has been on youth crime and also the issue of the cashless debit card. There was a meeting of Indigenous leaders today there in Port Hedland. Did anything come of that? Prime Minister Albanese said that youth crime didn't form part of the conversation when he spoke to Aboriginal elders. And I can't speak to that meeting specifically. I wasn't there. I find it hard to believe that no stakeholders in all of Port Hedland would have brought up the issue of youth crime and antisocial behaviour. We've seen uh, heavy police presence, alcohol restrictions imposed by the state government for years here now. It is a known issue that governments, both state and federal, need to address. Um, The scrapping of the cashless debit card, he was asked questions about that by the media. He sort of, again, like he's been saying for the past week or so, he backed in his government's smart card policy and said that they're just following the evidence and the advice they were given in scrapping the cashless debit card. Um, But I think the Prime Minister felt the biggest issue he was hearing was housing here in Port Hedland. He didn't make any um, housing announcements. He didn't take any measures to or take any steps to address that issue. Uh, I think I think, though, stakeholders, because what stakeholders are telling us, the journalists, is that crime is a big issue. And I'm sure he would have heard from some people, too, that youth crime and those social issues are just as important as housing. Was it a fly-in, fly-out visit? Are they already on the road? I don't know. They're all... I mean, at different times. Uh, the Prime Minister got in early, to be fair, before the rest of his cabinet. Uh, I think most of them will be out uh, by this afternoon tonight, though. Thanks very much, Tom Robinson, for bringing us up to date here on Australia Wide. Thank you. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Over the last several years, we've seen how floods, fires and other natural disasters can destroy wealth and assets that might have taken a person decades to accumulate. And we've seen thousands of households driven into poverty after losing everything. Now, a federal government committee is investigating poverty. And today, the inquiry visited Lismore in New South Wales, where community leaders and residents gave their first-hand insights into poverty and how disasters and the national housing crisis are making things so much more difficult. Emma Rennie has this story. Natalie Meyer has been working in social support for 23 years. As manager of the Nimbin Neighbourhood Centre, she told a Senate inquiry into poverty in Australia that her work on the front line with some of society's most disadvantaged people was distressing. Look, it's diabolical. It's catastrophic even. And it's been going on for a long, long time and we have been banging on about it for a long, long time and it only just gets worse and worse and worse. And then, of course, the floods have absolutely exacerbated that situation, but it was diabolical before the floods. Northern New South Wales is about to hit the one-year anniversary of its catastrophic, record-breaking floods, which exacerbated the existing poverty problem. It's estimated thousands of people who used to own or rent their homes have been left homeless or with inadequate housing. The inquiry chair, Senator Janet Rice from the Greens, summarised what she heard from multiple witnesses. What we heard this morning was incredibly powerful evidence about how housing is just an absolutely 
drastic situation. People having rent increases of sometimes tripling rents, massive amount of homelessness, every car park in the area every night having sort of five to ten, if not more, people living in their cars, older women living in their cars with their dogs, children living and families with children living in tents and people being evicted as landlords put up rents. A retired care coordinator who now sits on the Ministerial Advisory Council for Ageing, Roy Starkey, went along to observe the proceedings, but he wound up giving evidence in a private capacity. He said poverty is the result of cumulative disadvantage, a problem which has been years in the making. We now have more people living in poverty, we have more homelessness, we have more disadvantage and more social isolation. Poverty becomes generational. And people who are born into poverty rarely are able to get out of it. It's not saying they, some don't, but it becomes generational. Raised repeatedly throughout the inquiry hearing was the low rates of income support. A Nimbin resident who gave personal testimony about his experience with poverty and unemployment described the unbelievable difference it made for him when welfare support was temporarily increased during the outbreak of COVID. As soon as a person maybe, you know, gets a little bit ahead, they are actually able to pull themselves out and finding dignity and fulfilment and everything. It's such an important Part, you know. Witnesses who work in the social services industry were also asked by the inquiry panel if they thought increasing welfare payments would help alleviate poverty. Many said yes. Natalie Meyer, the neighbourhood centre manager from earlier, pushed for systemic change in the way support services and housing are managed in Australia. Mostly what we're interested in is really serious systemic and structural change being made to the taxation system, or the overall system that is really set up to make a profit out of the housing industry at the expense of people being able to have a roof over their heads. Senator Rice expects to hand down an interim report from the inquiry in April before the final report is presented in October. But she says the issues of housing and income support will be priorities for her as the committee looks to hand down its findings. You can't get your life together and to be in a position to actually find work unless you've got a decent amount of income to come in so that you can put food on the table, that you can pay the rent, you can pay your energy bills. And we know that the experience through COVID when the job seeker allowance was doubled, more people were then in the employment market. More people were able to then find themselves in a position where they could find work. Emma Rennie reporting there from Lismore. It's such a great sound, the sound of rain out bush. But for locals in the remote, out, remote outback community of La Jamanu, it wasn't just water coming from the sky. It was fish, live fish at that. For little kids running around collecting fish from puddles, the strange sight was super exciting. But it wasn't the first time this community on the northern edge of the Tanami has experienced this phenomenon. La Jamanu local and Central Desert Councillor Andrew Johnson-Japanka told Liz Trevescus he remembers the last time it happened. We've seen big storm heading up to my community and, and with this thought I just was it was just a rain, but it wasn't a rain. It was also a fish coming across to our community. And when when the rain would start falling, we we seen fish falling down as well. And and this is not the first time it happened in our community. It happened few times. I don't know why. 
So have you seen it before yourself, Andrew? Yeah, we've we seen it a few times before. And, and uh, in fact, we've seen it yesterday um, in the afternoon as well, in the evening. And it was, it was fish himself as well, and along with the rain. And I think it's a blessing of Lord Jesus Christ, maybe. Oh, or from the Lord, yeah. <laughs> Maybe who knows? Um, yeah, and how who did knows? You, so, how many fish were falling from the sky? Is there just a, uh, just too, a, just a few or many? Uh, too many, too many, too many of them. You know, too many of them in in certain areas as well. But in it was in Lajumano actually it, it itself. Could you hear as well as the rain on the roof? Could you hear like a thunk thunk of yeah. fish fish on the roof? We can see some fish falling down to the ground sometimes, you know, I mean, falling down on top of the roof, falling in the ground. And we can see actually those fish falling down from the sky. You could see them in the sky falling to the ground. It, it was an amazing thing that we ever seen, but to me that it wasn't the first time. We've seen that before. Truly amazing. Andrew Johnson, Japanaka. Japananka, I should say, speaking about how fish rained from the sky in Lajamanu on the weekend. And it turned out that the fish were actually perch. Quite incredible, hey? This is ABC Australia Wide. To WA South now, John Totterdill ventured into the Southern Ocean off the coast of Esperance to survey southern bluefin tuna. The lead researcher of the Cistation Research Centre immediately recognised that a very special moment was about to play out. He spoke to Esperance reporter Emily Smith about how he believes it to be a positive sign of good things to come. We are coming back from Mondrain and we were getting closer to Cape Le Grand just on the south side and noticed uh, this big, long, light, sort of glowing blue shape in the water. It came up and, wow, sure enough, there was this 18 to 20 metre blue whale just meandering. The blue whale! Wasn't in any hurry to go anywhere. And it stayed at the surface. There's not a lot of water there. It's probably only double the length of the whale in, in depth. So it didn't have a long way to, to dive. Yeah, we just um, observed it for a little while. It took several breaths. and but, How um, unusual yeah, is it, it to was, see a blue whale in this part of the oh, world? I was totally surprised. We all were. Oh, no. We do see them off Albany and Bremer, and they're known to pass well south of here on their way from the east. The bulk of them do come from South Australia. There's an area called the Bonnie Upwelling where a lot of these animals feed. I've sent images of this animal back to the researchers there for them to have a look in their catalogue. So it'd be nice to know if, if it was known or even if it was an unknown one, if it hadn't been photographed before. So you've never seen a blue whale that close to Esperance before? Never seen one that close to Esperance. Never seen one anywhere in the archipelago. As far as I'm aware, and I've been involved in the marine scene here for 40 years, no, I haven't heard of uh, a blue whale being sighted before. So this is this is quite significant, really. It couldn't be a sign that the whale is in distress at all? Was that something that you were concerned about? We did monitor it for long enough to be pretty sure that the animal was fine. It was didn't appear to be in any stress or... Hmm. So a positive sign, you reckon? Yeah, it's just a sign of these animals are becoming more plentiful slowly. And despite all the time you spent around the ocean and you must have seen heaps of whales during your your time, did it feel particularly special to see the biggest whale in the world right in front of you? Oh, certainly. I have seen a few in the past, seen a few off off Rottnest when we've done some work out there in the Perth Canyon and off Ningaloo. They actually pass 
quite close to Ningaloo on their way to Indonesia. We work up there each winter and spring and we get them either coming up April, May or coming back in September, October, and sometimes with calves. But seeing it where it was really like that, that's what really jumped out as well. Look, we turned around, there's the Cape right behind us and here's a blue whale like that was like okay this is this is cool this is good it is pretty cool isn't it john totterdale speaking there with our reporter emily smith and we're just enjoying sharing these stories of awe in the fish world on australia wide this afternoon you're listening to australia wide On ABC Radio. To the New South Wales coastal town of Batemans Bay now, where Dr. Kate Toyer lives. She's a vet, wife, parent of three, and trans activist. When Kate transitioned six years ago, she faced challenges, but not with her community, who proved that regional towns can be a warm and inclusive place. Reporter Adrian Reardon has the story. Trans people are there, they've been a part of your life. You probably just don't realise it. My name is Kate Toyer. My pronouns are she, her. I identify as a binary trans woman. I was probably sort of one of the first more visibly trans veterinarians out there, sort of certainly in Australia and probably the world. Kate has been the local vet in Batemans Bay since 1996, along with her wife, Tara Cashman. But as Tara and Kate were steadily building their vet practice and their family... Kate was struggling with her identity. Everyone else saw me as male, so I kind of went along with that. The feelings of not feeling quite comfortable as being male and the constraints of of what that entailed were always there simmering under the surface. In 2011, I talked to Tara and I said, I don't identify as a regular guy. And it was in 2015, I think, that I said to Tara, look, I've explored all of these other things. None of them really fit except for trans binary female. My name is Tara Cashman. I am a qualified veterinarian and I also work in event management. At that point in time, we had three children um, and our youngest at that stage was only seven months of age. It took a lot of honest and careful conversations between Kate and Tara to come to terms with what this meant for Kate and what it meant for their family as a whole. We had to deconstruct all of our internalised social biases as to what we thought success was, what we thought happiness was. I think people think that transgender individuals just wake up one day and magically they've come out like a butterfly from the other side of the cocoon. And it doesn't quite happen that way. It is a long journey that happens gradually at home, feeling comfortable and safe within that family unit and then extending out into your community, a bit like when you're a child as well, going out into the the wider world. I guess at the end of it, once we deconstructed and looked at all of these things and looked at, okay, what do we have left? Uh, What we had left was that we loved each other. So we started with that and, and we built back up from there. With the support of Tara and their children, Kate took the plunge and came out to her community. We sent out an email and, you know, we said from this date, Adam will no longer, will now be sort of known as Kate. Batemans Bay and their local clients rallied around Kate 
embracing her for who she was. I think everyone's fear is that you're not going to be accepted in a community or you're going to be ostracised. And surprisingly, country towns are a lot more broad-minded than we have a stereotypical view of what a country town is going to be like. I'm not saying it's all plain sailing. It's not plain sailing in any community. But, you know, on the whole, I would say that our town has been fantastic. Since then, Kate and Tara have set up Australian Rainbow Vets and Allies, or ARVA, as a support group for other LGBTQIA plus veterinary professionals. They'll be heading to Sydney World Pride to get the word out and spread their inclusive message. The veterinary profession is basically the least diverse profession in the world. We're just hoping to try and get that conversation started so that it's through understanding conversation and understanding that we can all grow and actually build a better world for everyone. As Kate champions more diversity in her profession, her biggest supporters are the people she comes home to. So my name is Elise Toyer and I'm 22 and this is Rianne, she is 16 and this is James and he is 12. We don't like to tell her this too often um, but we are pretty proud of her <laughs> and just for making the big decision sort of later on in life to um, live her truth. What I'm most proud of is that we have maintained our marriage, we have come through Other people probably have never had to consider exactly who they are and what is it about the person that you first fell in love with that means that you still do so and realising that it's far, far more than that skin deep or appearances. It's not what they wear or how long their hair is or what jewellery they've got on today. It is actually about the essence of the person and that's what we should be remembering and celebrating. Tara Cashman ending that story from Adrian Reardon. And you can read more about that story on Australia Wide's webpage on ABC Online. No guests, no aisle, no speeches, no fuss. Micro weddings and elopements are becoming increasingly popular as couples look to more intimate options to save money and stress. In North Queensland, 10 brides and grooms tied the knot in tiny back to back ceremonies this week. Townsville reporter Lily Nothing went along. When Molly Jackson met her husband-to-be William at the altar, there was no aisle, no speeches and no guests. It's us to a T. It's just perfect for us. Do it again. Do it again. (laughs) With just her two daughters as witnesses, Ms Jackson says a tiny, stress-free wedding was everything she'd hoped for. We didn't want to be spending money on things that weren't necessary. It was about us and what was important to us for the day, so we'd rather spend the little bit that we had to spend just on making it for us and not anybody else, our memories. They're among five couples who tied the knot in tiny back-to-back ceremonies in Townsville this week. The hitch-and-ditch concept was organised by wedding celebrant Abby Chivers and her photographer husband, Chris. We have created an elopement-style experience for couples in Townsville that want a big special day, they want styling, they want a bouquet, they want it to feel really sentimental, um, but, and you know they don't want to go to the registry office in a plain four-wall room. So they get an incredible experience and, um, without sacrificing everything. Australia's multi-billion dollar wedding industry was brought to its knees during the pandemic due to travel restrictions and guest limits. Less than 16,000 marriages were registered in Queensland in 2020, compared to more than 25,000 last year. 
micro-weddings and elopements have offered a much-needed alternative to the big event and have remained a popular option for couples like bride Lisa San Giuliano. As soon as I heard about this, like the weight lifted off my shoulder and I'm sure there's a lot of brides out there that feel that stress. It's more intimate yes. and, you know, it's not our first time. So, like, we thought, yeah, like, we're getting married. It should be about us, you know, rather than stressing about guest lists and all that. And my beautiful work friends, the one that even told me about this, I had no clue it even existed. And I thought, this is fantastic, you know, and ran it by our families. They were all in. They're like, yeah, do it, you know. For Kate Pressy and Josh Rayner, celebrating love and family in Townsville was the priority rather than creating a day for guests to enjoy. We're pretty low-key people and we wanted the razzle-dazzle without the crowds, I guess is the best way to describe it. So it's about being in love and stuff. Yeah, just just to have the moment together, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Kate and Josh ending that story by Lily Nuffling. And in fairness, they all sounded very relaxed. And that's Australia Wide for this Tuesday. Remember, you can podcast Australia Wide on the Listen app. Just head there, search Australia Wide. And while you're there, please subscribe. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.